0: ...of the people of the Treaty 7 region in southern Alberta. The city of Calgary is also home to the Métis Nation of Alberta Region 3.
1: This is David Barsamian, producer and host of Alternative Radio. You're listening to CJSW,
0: 90.9 FM in Calgary. In his second inaugural address... Abraham Lincoln identified slavery as the fundamental cause of the war and implicitly challenged Americans to think about how to fulfill the aspirations unleashed by the destruction of slavery. And the three constitutional amendments form part of our nation's response. Every day we still live with the consequences of Reconstruction and its overthrow. But however flawed, the era that followed the Civil War can still serve as an inspiration for those striving to achieve a more just uh, society.
1: That's Eric Foner, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamyan. This edition of AR features Eric Foner on the legacy of Reconstruction. The Declaration of Independence declared equality as an American ideal. But it took a century to partially realize that goal. One of the key periods of U.S. history is Reconstruction. They were the years following the Civil War. The era began with promises of egalitarianism. The 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the Constitution were revolutionary. They abolished slavery, guaranteed all persons due process and equal protection of the law and gave black men the right to vote. In a few short years, those juridical gains were rolled back with Jim Crow and KKK terror. Today, the 14th Amendment, which clearly states, all persons born or naturalized in the United States are citizens of the United States, is being contested. The Reconstruction Amendments have been undermined and weakened. Voter suppression, mass incarceration, and prison slave labor are all features of the world's oldest democracy. Our guest today is Eric Foner, winner of the Pulitzer Prize. He's DeWitt Clinton Professor Emeritus of History at Columbia. He's the author of many books, including The Second Founding, How the Civil War and Reconstruction Remade the Constitution. He spoke at the Athenaeum of Philadelphia in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, in mid-January 2020. And now, Eric Foner.
0: Everybody knows that the Civil War and the Reconstruction period, which came after, transformed American society in innumerable ways. Maybe the most tangible legacies of that period are these three pivotal amendments to the U.S. Constitution, the 13th, 14th, and 15th amendments. They wrote a new definition of American citizenship and the rights it entails into the Constitution. They forged a new relationship between individual Americans and the national government. And so profound were these changes that they should be seen not as just Um, amendments or alterations to an existing structure, but as a second constitution, a second founding. A fundamentally new document emerged uh, uh, because of these amendments, and that's the constitution we are living with uh, today. But the fact is that these amendments have not achieved the widespread recognition Uh, that, let's say, the Bill of Rights has in popular understanding of American history, Uh, nor are the authors of these amendments, people like James Ashley, Henry Wilson, John Bingham. uh, These are not household names when you think about the key figures in the history of American law and uh, politics. Now, Reconstruction was both a time period, the years following the American Civil War, and a historical process that doesn't actually have a clear beginning and end. The process by which the United States tried to come to terms with the consequences of the Civil War, the most important of which, of course, were the preservation of the nation and the destruction of the institution of slavery. One might almost say that we are trying, still trying to come to to work out the consequences of the end of slavery in this country. And in that sense, Reconstruction never really ended. Now, I have devoted much of my scholarly career to the Reconstruction period, but I have to admit that many Americans know very little about it. But the fact is that Reconstruction remains part of our lives today. Or to put it another way, key questions that face American society today are Reconstruction questions. Who is entitled to American citizenship? I mean, that's being fought out every day on the border of this country. Who should have the right to vote? That's being fought out. I mean, just pick up the newspaper today. In Wisconsin, 200,000 people are being thrown off the voting rolls because of, basically because, the, government, the, the authorities there think they may vote Democratic, so it's better to kick them off the voting rolls. But the right to vote, even though we are pr- proud of being a democracy, the right to vote is always contested uh, in our history, and that is a Reconstruction uh, question. Terrorism was a phenomenon of Reconstruction. Not terrorism from abroad, but homegrown American terrorism. The Ku Klux Klan and groups like that and how to deal with terrorist violence was another deep problem of that uh, era. And certainly every session of the Supreme Court uh, includes uh, questions which require the adjudication of the meaning of the 14th Amendment particularly. Um, You can't understand American society today without knowing something about that period 150 years ago. Now, Reconstruction is also an example of what we sometimes call the politics of history. I'm not talking about whether the historian is a Republican, a Democrat, a liberal, a conservative. I mean the way in which historical interpretation both reflects and helps to shape the politics of the time the historian is writing For most of the 20th century, what we call the Dunning School, named after my long-ago predecessor at Columbia, William A., Professor William A. Dunning, uh, the Dunning School dominated historical writing and popular consciousness about Reconstruction. In that view, Reconstruction was the lowest point in the saga of American democracy, a period of misgovernment and corruption. Why? Well, that was caused, according to the Dunning scholars, by the misguided decision to give the right to vote to black Americans, who were, according to them, uh, innately incapable of participating intelligently in American democracy. Dunning thought the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery, was necessary. The 14th Amendment, which established equality before the law, reasonable. The 15th Amendment giving the right to vote to black men a total disaster, he said. And this interpretation dominated historical scholarship for well over half a century, really, and it survives to this day in some corners of popular uh, historical consciousness. How do we account for the remarkable longevity of this portrait of Reconstruction? But this is what I learned in high school in the late 1950s, not in uh, Mississippi or somewhere, in the suburbs of New York City, Long Beach, Long Island. That's what we were told. Reconstruction was the lowest point in all of American history. Why did it retain such uh, longevity? The reason is it harmonized with the uh, racial system of the South, and indeed the whole United States, in the period we call Jim Crow, from 1900 until the Civil Rights Revolution of the 1960s. This historical interpretation had very clear political lessons. One was it was a mistake to give black men the right to vote, and therefore the white South was justified in taking away the right to vote, as they did around 1900 in that period. And any efforts to give them back their constitutional rights would lead to just another replay of the so-called horrors of Reconstruction. And second of all, Reconstruction was imposed on the South by Northerners, by outsiders. Maybe many of them were motivated by humanitarian concerns, but the result proved, uh, allegedly, that um, outsiders do not understand race relations in the South, and the white South should resist outside pressures for change in the racial system. As Gunnar Myrdal noted in 1944 in his famous book, An American Dilemma, uh, he said, when pressed about the black condition, white southerners, quote, will regularly bring forward the horrors of the Reconstruction government. Now, when the Civil Rights Revolution took place, this entire edifice fell to the ground, uh, particularly its overt racism. And today, historians see Reconstruction as a noble, if not entirely successful, effort to establish for the first time in American history an interracial democracy. It was a precursor of the modern civil rights movement, which was sometimes called the Second Reconstruction. If Reconstruction was tragic, we now think it is not because it was attempted, but because it failed, and thus left to subsequent generations the difficult problem of racial justice. Now, to understand how, despite its immediate failure, Reconstruction reshaped our history in significant ways, we have to remind ourselves of the status of African-Americans when the Civil War uh, broke out. There were around 4 million slaves in the United States in 1860. Slavery was powerful, it was expanding, Uh, it was economically thriving. People who think slavery was dying out or would have somehow just disappeared, no, it was going the other way. There were more slaves in 1860 than at any other moment in American uh, history. And the power of slavery shaped the definition of American nationality, giving it a powerful racial dimension. And as many of you know, on the eve of the Civil War in 1857, in the Dred Scott decision, the Supreme Court explicitly stated that no black person could be a citizen of the United States. Citizenship was for white people only. This is a white white man's government, as the phrase of that time went. Um, The only people before the Civil War who advocated a non-racial definition of uh, American nationality were the uh, abolitionists, black and white, who fought not only to end slavery, but for equal rights for uh, free black Americans. Black political gatherings before the Civil War, some of which took place here in Philadelphia, consciously chose to call themselves conventions of colored citizens. They claimed a citizenship which the larger political system was denying them. They said citizenship should be based on birthright, being born in the country, not on race, ...or any other category like that. And this is what came about during Reconstruction. I'm not, I should say, I'm not a lawyer. I approach this a little differently. So I don't, you know, when we're thinking about a lot of these, uh, some jurists and others talk about trying to find the original meaning or the original intent of constitutional provisions... Now, to a historian, this makes no sense, In the, in the, the idea that there, any important document has one single original meaning is absurd intellectually. That doesn't stop some members of the Supreme Court from advocating it, but it's incoherent. But if one is going to try to figure out what the authors of these amendments were trying to accomplish, which is a legitimate historical question, Um, one has to look way beyond the traditional sources of uh, lawmaking and judicial decision-making. In her memoirs, written in the 1890s, the great feminist Elizabeth Cady Stanton uh, recalled that, she said, Reconstruction, quote, involved the reconsideration of the principles of our government and the natural rights of man. The nation's heart was thrilled with prolonged debates in Congress and state legislatures, in pulpits and public journals, at every fireside on these vital questions. In other words, these constitutional issues were being debated up and down the society, in homes, in journals, in public meetings. And if too often when we try to find out what the meaning was, we go to just congressional debates, but My argument is you've got to go way beyond that. You've got to go, to use a modern phrase, way outside the beltway. What ordinary people, black and white, thought was happening in terms of the Constitution is as much part of the original meaning as a speech by Congressman Bingham or someone else uh, in Congress. But anyway, that's all the sort of background. Let let me um, look a little more carefully at these three constitutional amendments and what happened to them. The first was the 13th, ratified in 1865, which irrevocably abolished slavery throughout the United States, and introduced the word slavery into the Constitution for the first time. The founders had avoided, they'd used uh, circumlocutions like other persons or persons held to labor, they didn't they protected slavery, no question about it, but they didn't use the word slavery. But here slavery is explicitly abolished. Why was the Thirteenth Amendment necessary anyway? Hadn't Lincoln freed all the slaves in the Emancipation Proclamation of January 1, 1863? On that day, Lincoln declared free over three million slaves in most of the Confederacy. But The Emancipation Proclamation left untouched three-quarters of a million slaves. First of all, there were those in the four border states, the slave states that remained in the Union, Delaware, Maryland, Kentucky, Missouri. The Emancipation Proclamation was a war measure directed against the Confederacy. Those four slave states were in the Union. They weren't in rebellion, so it had no bearing on them. But even more uh, interesting, I think, than that is that freeing individual slaves is not the same thing as abolishing slavery. To abolish slavery, you've got to somehow get rid of all the laws. Slavery is created by state laws. You've got to get rid of those laws, not just free people, to get rid of the institution of slavery. In other words, emancipation and abolition are not the same thing. And it required this constitutional amendment to overturn all the state laws that um, in one form or another established uh, slavery. Now contrary uh, to what one might conclude from a fairly recent Hollywood movie, which many of you probably have seen about Lincoln, it was the abolitionist movement, not Lincoln, that originated the 13th Amendment. Lincoln was actually uh, skeptical about it. He, he hated slavery, no question about it. But he thought the best way to do this was state-by-state abolition. Getting a constitutional amendment ratified is not easy. It requires two-thirds of Congress and three-quarters of the states. Uh, he made it very clear at the be- early in the war that no Confederate state could come back into the Union unless it abolished slavery. And he encouraged them to do so. But anyway, the campaign for an amendment... Was launched in early 1864 by the Women's National Loyal League, headed by uh, Elizabeth Stanton, who I mentioned, and Susan B. Anthony. And they, uh, in February 1864, they deposited a, or they and their uh, people with them, a massive petition with hundreds of thousands of uh, signatures on the desk of Charles Sumner, the great abolitionist senator from. Uh, Massachusetts, whereupon Sumner proposed a 13th Amendment based on the French Declaration of the Rights of Man and the Citizen from 1791. His proposal said, all persons are equal before the law, so no person can hold another as a slave. That was Sumner's proposal. Jacob Howard, senator from Michigan, got up and urged Sumner to, quote, Basically, forget about these French people, (laughs) you know, we don't want to hear from them. Um, Dismiss all reference to French constitutions and French codes and go back to good old Anglo-Saxon language. Anyway, the final language was not Sumner's, but actually was borrowed from the Northwest Ordinance of 1787, which Congress had enacted, and the, the 13th Amendment said, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted shall exist within the United States. Slavery and involuntary servitude cannot exist except as a punishment for crime. Now that provision, the criminal exemption, is a good illustration of an aphorism that historians write with one eye at least on the present. For decades Uh, Nobody who wrote about this period paid any attention, including me, paid any attention to it. But lately, with um, mass incarceration, the mass use of prison labor becoming a major public issue, uh, people have begun to wonder, why is that criminal exemption in the 13th Amendment? Well, the fact is that that phrase goes way back. It wasn't invented in the Civil War. It really comes from Jefferson. The Northwest Ordinance, that language, was based on a previous proposal of Jefferson, the so-called Land Ordinance of 1784, which included the abolition of slavery in the nation's territories and this criminal exemption. Pennsylvania, for example, had abolished slavery gradually in a law of 1780, just four years before that. The Pennsylvania law said nothing about criminals. It didn't say, well, slaves are free, but criminals still have to be slaves, nothing. But more interesting is the fact that um, uh, nobody in Congress even mentioned it. None of the press mentioned it. Sumner suggested maybe it wasn't a good idea, but then he said, I really, he said, later he said, I regret that I didn't make a fuss about it, but um, my colleagues were impatient and anxious to get their dinner. I regret my forbearance, he said. But the fact is that as a result of that criminal exemption, Courts have always ruled that forced labor by criminals is not unconstitutional. If they don't even have to be paid, actually, and they certainly don't have the protections like minimum wages or you know maximum hours. Now, this was not intended at all. This was a kind of a loophole, and it shows you that sometimes unintended consequences can be as important as uh, the intended ones. Now, despite that, abolitionists obviously were ecstatic about the 13th Amendment when it did get passed and ratified, abolishing slavery, and they saw it as the beginning of an even deeper transformation, which to use a modern term, uh, you might say it was was going to be the basis of regime change in the United States, changing a pro-slavery regime into an anti-slavery regime. Most Republicans were not abolitionists, but they agreed on certain principles. Slavery had caused the war and the death of three-quarters of a million Americans. Slavery had deprived its victims of the basic rights that all people are entitled to. It had done more than that. It had degraded labor, white and black, in the South. It threatened all Americans' civil liberties. The 13th Amendment should change all of that and at least that's what many, many Republicans hoped it would, it would do. Unlike the Emancipation Proclamation, the amendment applied to the entire country, not just, uh, no exemptions, and uh, for the first time it made the abolition of slavery a central part of the legal order, uh, you might say, of the United States. And in one respect, it was truly revolutionary. The 13th Amendment simply abrogated the largest concentration of property in the United States, the slaves the 4 million slaves as property were worth more than all the banks facu- uh, banks factories and railroads in the country put together that property was just abrogated uh, abolished with no compensation whatsoever to the owners that's something that has not happened very uh, frequently in uh, human uh, history well If it resolved the fate of slavery, however, the amendment opened up a whole lot of other questions. What was actually being abolished? Property in human beings? Yes. What about the racial inequality that was essential to slavery? Was that also being abolished? And if so, how? What would be the status of the former slaves in American society? What did it mean to be a free person in post-war America? All those questions were raised by the Thirteenth Amendment, but not uh, resolved. White Southerners had their own answers to these questions, as became clear when Lincoln was assassinated and he was succeeded by Andrew Johnson, who's in the news nowadays because he became the first president to be impeached, as you know, in 1868. Johnson was once lionized as a heroic defender of the Constitution against the vindictive radical Republicans. Today, he has a strong claim to being considered the worst president in American history. There are other contenders, but um, Johnson, uh, Johnson has his supporters for this, uh, this title. Johnson lacked all of Lincoln's qualities of greatness. He was deeply racist. He ha- lacked any sense of northern public opinion. He didn't know how to work with Congress. He was fundamentally incompetent and unfit for the office. Johnson set up new governments in the South completely controlled by whites. They passed laws that so severely restricted the rights of the emancipated slaves that it seemed to the North that they were trying to kind of reestablish slavery in all but name. The result of that was that Republicans in Congress who believed that the 13th Amendment empowered them to protect the basic rights of these former slaves, moved to, to do that, to have federal protection when the state governments were uh, trying to reduce them back to uh, un- unfree labor. And they passed one of the most important laws in American history, the Civil Rights Act of 1866 the first civil rights law in American history and the first law to be passed over the veto, the first significant law to be passed over the veto of the president. The Civil Rights Act states to begin with that anybody born in the United States is a citizen except for Native Americans who were still considered citizens of their tribal uh, sovereignties. This is the idea of birthright citizenship. Uh, the principle that anybody can be a loyal American, that race, religion, nationality, language, whatever, do not matter. Nor does the legal status of your parents. Um, No matter who your parents are, if you are born in the United States, with one or two very, very small exceptions, you are a citizen uh, of the United States, according to the Civil Rights Act. Um, And this principle is then shortly put into the 14th Amendment. Now, it remains controversial, as you know. President Trump, uh, a year ago, said that he was going to abrogate it by executive order uh, in the case of children born to undocumented immigrants. A woman is here who has crossed the border illegally, she has a child. President Trump said that child should not be an American citizen. Maybe not, but, that, but unfortunately, the language of the Constitution is 100% clear. Anybody born in the United States, it doesn't matter. Your parents can be bank robbers, your parents can be anything, and that has no effect on whether your children are citizens of the United States or not. And the same is true for undocumented uh, immigrants. But it's a, it's a fundamental principle of American life, or has been for the last 150 years, even though it is still under attack in some quarters today. The civil rights law went on to declare basic rights, civil rights, that all these citizens were to enjoy regardless of race. They're basically the rights to compete in the economic marketplace, the right to own property, the right to sue and be sued, testify in court, go to court, the right to have the laws apply equally to you and to other people, you can't just have one set of laws for black people and another set of laws for white people, as the southern states were doing at that time. Um, it doesn't say anything about the right to vote, but it does say that the law that must, that, that citizens must enjoy all of these rights. The, the language is interesting, the same as enjoyed by white persons. Before the Civil War, the concept of whiteness in the law was a a wall, a boundary of exclusion. Only white people can vote. Only white people can serve in the militia. That's a bar to certain other people enjoying those rights. Now it says everyone has to enjoy these rights the same as white people. Now whiteness is a baseline that that those rights have to apply to everybody, not just just, uh, white Americans. So uh, Johnson vetoed the bill. It passed over his veto, as I said. And in his veto message, he denounced the law for what is today uh, commonly called reverse discrimination. Quote, the distinction of race and color in the bill uh, is made to operate in favor of the colored and against the white race. And in this idea that expanding the rights of non-whites somehow takes something away from white people, we still hear the voice of Andrew Johnson in some of our political debates uh, even today. But of course, a law can be repealed by the next Congress. So very quickly, Congress moved to put these principles into another amendment, the 14th Amendment, which passes Congress in the summer of 1866. The 14th Amendment is long and complicated. It's the longest amendment ever added to the Constitution. it deals with a lot of different things, It, it deal, as, as simple as the, it says no one is going to get money in compensation for the loss of their slaves or the Confederate debt is never going to be repaid, you know, if you loaned money to the Confederacy, papally in the South, that money is gone. There's a convoluted section called Section 2 of the 14th Amendment which is almost unreadable But it basically tries, what it's basically trying to do is give the southern states a choice. Either give black men the right to vote or lose some of your representation in Congress. Because there was this odd consequence of emancipation. Before the Civil War, you know, representation in the House of Representatives was based on the free population of each state plus three fifths of the slaves. So the southern states got extra members of Congress based on three-fifths of the slave population. Now all the slaves are free. So then, now they will be counted as five-fifths. In other words, there'll be more of them counted, even though the southern states at this point didn't give any of them a right to vote. So in the next reapportionment of 1870, uh, the southern states would have extra congressmen, and many northerners didn't want that. Uh, And some of them said, well, why don't we just give black men the right to vote then? But that was still unpopular in large parts of the North. Uh, So they had this convoluted thing. If you exclude any group of men, of male citizens, from the right to vote, you lose, in proportion, members of Congress. So let's say Mississippi, which is about 50% black, 50% white at that time. If they didn't give black men the right to vote, they would lose half their congressmen. It's up to them, but... So this is a, you know, so it's a complicated thing. The, the The feminist movement was outraged by this because it put the word male into the Constitution for the first time. It's the first time there's a gender distinction in the Constitution. If women are denied the right to vote, which every state did at this time, there is no political penalty. If any group of men is denied the right to vote, the state will lose members of Congress. By the way, this has never been enforced. Even though uh, the southern states abrogated the right to vote for black men for many, many years later on, uh, they never lost any congressmen. And uh, I'm hoping to form a little club to enforce the second section of the 14th Amendment. Because, as I said, there are states now which are throwing thousands of people off the voting rolls. And if they, if they do that enough, they in proportion, you can figure it out, they might lose a congressman if this was actually enforced, which, of course, it will never be. But um, But it's in there. But the heart of the 14th Amendment is the first section. You're listening to Eric Foner, The Legacy
1: of Reconstruction. You can order copies of this program and Eric Foner's book, The Second Founding, how the Civil War and Reconstruction remade the Constitution, by calling one 800 444 That's one 800 Or you can order online on our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org.
0: The heart of the 14th Amendment is the first section. This begins by reaffirming birthright citizenship—anybody born in the United States is a citizen— and then it goes on to bar the states from abridging what they call the privileges or immunities of citizens or to denying to any person—not just citizens, non-citizens also, any person—the equal protection of the laws. Equal protection. These are now, unlike the Civil Rights Act, which listed specific rights, these are general principles, privileges and immunities, equal protection. They have to be given meaning by Congress and the courts as time goes on. Now, what's most dramatic about this section is that the word equal, the word equal did not appear in the original Constitution except in a a clause about what happens if Two candidates for president get an equal number of electoral votes, or something like this. The Fourteenth Amendment makes the Constitution something it never was, and is today, if with great consequence, which is a vehicle through which Americans who feel they're being denied equality can go to court and make it make a claim for it, a constitutional claim. Um, And in recent decades, the courts have used the amendment to expand the legal rights of numerous groups. Most recently, of course. Uh, gay men and women who want to marry. The gay marriage decision of a few years ago was a 14th Amendment equal protection decision. If a state allows one group of people to marry, it can't just say this other group of people cannot marry. That's a violation of the equal protection of the law. It's pretty simple actually. Obviously, the people in the Congress of 1866 were not thinking about gay marriage. That was hardly a political issue at that time. And this is an example of when Justice Kennedy, who wrote that opinion, he said, "This is what what we mean when we talk about a living constitution, a constitution that evolves over time because our concepts of liberty and equality evolve over time as well. But despite controversy over its language, which is broad and open to different interpretations, the first section of the Fourteenth Amendment fundamentally transformed, the relationship of Americans to the government. It asserted federal authority to create a new definition of citizenship and to determine the rights which went along with it. All in all, to borrow a phrase from George William Curtis, the editor at that time of Harper's Weekly magazine, he said the 14th Amendment changed a constitution for white men into one for mankind. The 14th Amendment also, in fact, all three of these amendments, represent a significant change in the federal system, that is, the relationship between uh, the federal government and the states. Uh, You can see my point uh, if you compare them with the Bill of Rights, the first ten amendments ratified in 1791, uh, which list all of our basic civil liberties, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, trial by jury, etc., etc., The Bill of Rights was based on the idea that the greatest danger to liberty was a too powerful national government. What are the first words of the First Amendment? Congress shall make no law, abridging the freedom of speech, etc. Congress. The Bill of Rights did not apply to the states. The states didn't have to abide by that. Congress shall make no law. South Carolina outlawed speeches criticizing slavery. Wasn't that a violation of the First Amendment? No, that's not Congress, that's a state. They can do anything they want. But now look at the three Reconstruction Amendments. Each one of them ends with a clause saying, Congress shall have the power to enforce this amendment. From Congress shall make no law, a restriction, to Congress shall have the power, an empowerment now the federal government is seen as more likely to protect the basic liberties of Americans, and the state governments, which had established slavery, are seen as the danger to liberty. So there's a complete shift in power between the state governments and the and the national government. Now the Fourteenth Amendment said nothing directly about the right to vote, but pretty soon Congress decided that the governments that Andrew Johnson Uh, had put put into effect in the South were just no good at all and they had to be replaced and in 1867 they launched what we call radical reconstruction by requiring the Southern states to adopt new constitutions which gave black men as well as white the right to vote. This then soon led to the 15th Amendment which prohibited states from denying anyone the right to vote on the basis of race, enfranchising thousands and thousands of black men who had never had the right to vote uh, before that. Now this was a tremendous, this was a giant change in the body politic of the United States. So it's quite a change, but the fact is the radical Republicans wanted a different 15th Amendment. They didn't want one just saying a state cannot deny you the right to vote because of race. They wanted a positive statement. Unfortunately, excluding women, as always then, all male citizens, 21 years of age, have the right to vote. Okay? That's what they wanted. What's the difference? The difference is that the amendment that actually passed, again, had these loopholes. It allowed for other supposedly non-racial qualifications, property qualifications, literacy tests, poll taxes, understanding clauses where you had to convince the registrar that you understood the state constitution. These would later, two generations later, be used without mentioning race to deprive the vast majority of the uh, black population of the South of the right to vote. Why was it an amendment with those loopholes? Well, the fact was that even northern states wanted to keep control of the vote. It was a, it was a tradition that states determined who voted, and it would have been very hard to get the radical uh, positive amendment ratified, at least that's what they thought, by three quarters. I mean, for example, California did not let Chinese people vote. And they didn't want an amendment which might allow the thousands of Chinese immigrants there to uh, cast ballots. And so even northern states would not be happy with something that just uniformly enfranchised all uh, adult men. But despite that, the advent of black suffrage, as I said, led to the advent of what we call radical reconstruction, um, a period of biracial democracy in the South. New governments created something like 2,000... African-American men held some kind of public office in Reconstruction. Next month is the 150th anniversary of the first African-American who sat in Congress. That was Hiram Revels from uh, uh, Mississippi. He was elected by Mississippi in 18... February 1870, he took a seat, the first African-American in all of our history in in, in the U.S. Senate. Now, Everybody knows that we have had 45 presidents, and one of them has been black. Everyone knows that, right? There have been over 2,000 senators in our history, and of those, only 10 have been African-American. Three of them are actually sitting today for the first time in American history. Uh, Kamala Harris, uh, Cory Booker, and uh, Tim Scott. But 10 out of 2,000 is a much worse ratio than 1 out of 45. In other words, my point is there have been these almost insuperable barriers to black people gaining high public office. You know, high, not just getting elected from a district with a lot of black voters, but I'm tell- governors, you could do the same statistics, uh, senators and presidents. So it, it's a sign. And it also shows you how remarkable Reconstruction was that Rebels, and then after him, Bre- Blanche Bruce, uh, also of Mississippi, was elected to the Senate. So two of those ten senators are from Mississippi in the Reconstruction era. Unfortunately, the Reconstruction experiment uh, did not succeed. It was overthrown for complicated reasons I can't go into. A couple of generations later, around the turn of the century, the new system of Jim Crow was put in place, which was based on racial segregation, disenfranchisement of black men, uh, severe cutback in public funding for black education, and, of course, widespread lynching, extra-legal violence. Didn't this system violate the four, 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, which was supposed to establish legal equality regardless of race? Ultimately, it fell to the Supreme Court to determine the legality of this new system. And, of course, uh, over, the, over time, the Supreme Court played a crucial role in the retreat from the ideals of Reconstruction. Little by little they whittled away, not in one decision or one time, one year, but over a course of 20-30 years they whittled away, whittled away until the 13th Amendment basically became irrelevant. They said it abolished slavery and there's nothing else for it to do. Forget about racial inequality, forget about other things, they're not slavery. The 14th Amendment, equal protection, of course, in Plessy versus Ferguson, 1898. There's, well, racial segregation uh, created by the state. that That is not a violation of equality as long as the facilities are separate but equal, even though they never were equal, of course. And even though, even if they were equal, as John Marshall Harlan, the one great dissenter, said, it's obvious that the purpose of these measures is to stigmatize black people is to say that they are not worthy of association with other citizens, so is inherently unequal, regardless of whether the railroad car is the same as some other railroad car. But the court uh, rejected that. Fifteenth Amendment, the most, uh, I think, egregious, uh, they did nothing when the southern states took the right to vote away from uh, African American men. Um, Giles V. Harris, a case in the early 20th century out of Alabama, Uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes, very famous justice who had just joined the court, uh, basically threw up his hands and said, you know, if the white population of Alabama wants to take away the constitutional rights of black Americans, there's nothing the Supreme Court can do about that. As one northern newspaper wrote then, we are face to face with the consideration that the Constitution may be violated with impunity the result demonstrated a sometimes forgotten fact, that the Constitution is not self-enforcing. Somebody has to enforce it, whether it's Congress, the courts, or the President, or somebody, and that um, you know, these rights can be gained and they can also be taken away. But I just want to conclude by, by pointing out that even though the Supreme Court developed this jurisprudence, there were other voices in the late 19th century Uh, One of the most remarkable that I came across was a group called the Brotherhood of Liberty, which is a group of black uh, lawyers and um, uh, ministers in Baltimore uh, who published in 1889 a giant tome, 600 pages, called Justice and Jurisprudence, which was a forthright attack on how the Supreme Court had interpreted the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, and a call for a much more, a much broader understanding of the rights that those amendments entailed and the power the federal government had and ought to exercise to uh, protect those rights among uh, the former slaves and their uh, descendants. But the interesting thing is, since we live in a you know legal system based on precedent— Most of those late 19th century decisions are still good law. Plessy versus Ferguson was overturned, but even the Warren court of the 1960s worked around these older decisions. They didn't confront them directly. They didn't attack them. They were not willing to say, for 80 years, the Supreme Court has just been wrong. Maybe you can understand why they wouldn't say that. But that is the fact, my opinion. I'm not a lawyer. They should wipe away all those decisions and start again. And my point is really just that we Americans sometimes like to think that our history is a straight line of greater and greater freedom. But actually, uh, as this history shows, it's a much more complicated story of ups and downs. Rights can be gained and rights can be taken away to be fought for. Uh, another day. In his second inaugural address, at the beginning of this story, Abraham Lincoln identified slavery as the fundamental cause of the war and implicitly challenged Americans to think about how to fulfill the aspirations unleashed by the destruction of slavery. And the three constitutional amendments form part of our nation's response. Every day we still live with the consequences of Reconstruction and its overthrow. But however flawed, the era that followed the Civil War can still serve as an inspiration for those striving to achieve a more just uh, society. So thank you very much for listening.
1: I would suggest that Reconstruction did not fail. It was sabotaged.
0: Uh, it certainly was. Uh, you know, to, in a way, I, I, I appreciate your saying that. We are used to saying Reconstruction failed in the sense that the goals it set out to achieve were not achieved, at least were achieved for a while and then later were reversed. It was sabotaged, it was assaulted by violent terrorism, as I said. There was also a uh, by the 1870s and 80s, a significant retreat in the North from the ideals of equality, which the war had kind of galvanized. In a way, uh, I agree with you. If, if we if we start by saying Reconstruction failed, then our analysis becomes why did it fail instead of what did it accomplish and what wasn't accomplished. So, you know, I, I will accept that. Uh, but I also think it's important. Whether we say it's failed, overturned, reversed, whatever word we want to use, we have to realize there was, a, as you say, a concerted... It inspired a giant backlash, uh, which took a violent form, and the governments found it very difficult to to respond to that. Is U.S. slavery unique? Well, you know, every country in the Western Hemisphere had slavery at some point or another. Even Canada, which... (laughs) I admire Canada in many ways, but they have written a history, someone just wrote a very interesting article about the erasure of slavery from the historical memory. How many people know they actually had a lot of slaves in Nova Scotia and places like that? Uh, but Canadians don't know it, it's just not part of their history. But putting Canada aside, yes, of course, the Caribbean, Brazil, Central America, every country that had slavery has a legacy of racial inequality. I don't care. It's, the United States is not unique in that in any way. Some places, it, it takes different forms in different places. Most other countries didn't have the rigid segregation system that we had for a long time. We don't have it anymore exactly, but, um, but the, raci- racially based slavery... The difference between slavery in the Western Hemisphere and slavery in human history, which goes way back, sad to say, as long as we can trace society back, we can find slavery. Um, But this this is the first time it was racial slavery. I mean, the Roman Empire, there were plenty of slaves, plenty of them, but they didn't physically look different. They were captives in war and all this sort of thing. It was not that hard to get out of being slavery. In, some of the leaders of the Roman Empire were descendants of people who had been slaves. Um, once you were free, you were free, and people accepted that. Whereas in the Western Hemisphere, you bore the mark of slavery on your person, even if you became a free African American. And you were the subject of, of discrimination in many ways. So, no, the United States is not unique. Some people would say what, we, what was unique was that we actually made a concerted effort to bring the former slaves into a thriving vision of democracy right after the end of slavery. Not 75 years later, but two years after the end of slavery. Suddenly they are voting, holding office, exercising genuine power. Um, But because the advance was so great, the backlash was also that much more violent uh, and oppressive. Uh, so it's wor- it's definitely worth looking at what happened in different parts of the Western Hemisphere. Each place has its own peculiar history, of course. But uh, racism, wherever you had slavery, you still have racism. I'm sorry to say it is deeply, deeply embedded in the culture created by that by that syst- by that system by the system of slavery.
1: What about the Equal Rights Amendment?
0: Of course, the giving of women of the right to vote in the Nineteenth Amendment has been seen as abrogating the word male in the 14th Amendment, right? In other words, it no longer makes sense to say if you deny men the right to vote, uh, you will lose representation, but if you deny women the right to vote, you will not lose representation, because the political status of men and women has changed because of the or their 19th Amendment. Um, yeah, I'm totally in favor of the Equal Rights Amendment. It's an interesting case because it came very, very close to ratification in the 1970s and early 1980s and then fell slightly short. And then Congress passed a law or a resolution saying uh, that uh, there's a time limit and the time limit is up. But can you do that? There's nothing in the Constitution about a time limit for a constitutional amendment. And it seems like Virginia will now ratify it with a Democratic uh, legislature and governor that Virginia may well ratify giving it the three-quarters of the states, but then it'll go to courts and say, well, does this count? Because it passed the deadline that Congress set, or maybe Congress has no right to set a deadline. If you can tell me what our current Supreme Court would decide about that, (laughs) I don't know. I I honestly don't know. Uh, We have a very strange Supreme Court now. We have two members of the Supreme Court who have been credibly accused of violent, you know, assaults on women. And that kind of makes you wonder how they would vote on the Equal Rights Amendment. But um, we will see.
1: What was the Civil War about?
0: My view of what the Civil War was about uh, derives from Lincoln's second inaugural address, March 1865, when the war was just about over. And uh, I'm paraphrasing here, he said, let us get serious here, folks. Everybody knows slavery was the cause of the war. Everybody did know that in 1865. A lot of people don't know it anymore. But, uh, yes, money obviously talks, but why would there be, since slaves were such valuable property, why would Northerners want to get rid of slavery if it was just about money? They were, North was profiting from slavery. Who do you think was transporting the cotton to England. Philadelphia and New York merchants, they were doing quite well from even though there was no slavery anymore in the northern states, the profits of slavery were flowing. There was no economic incentive for northerners to go to war against the south or to try to abolish the institution of slavery. Uh, That doesn't mean that a lot of them didn't try to make a buck along the way. That's the American way, and plenty of them did. Native Americans, absolutely, that's an entire different question. I think it's very important the Civil War was a turning point. You know, even as the war against the South was going on, Indian wars were taking place in the West. You might say the unification of the United States into a modern, powerful nation-state which the defeat of the Confederacy accomplished was also being pursued in these wars against Native Americans. That, you know, the idea of a, unif- a homogenous nation with no sovereignties within it was the death knell of tribal sovereignty, tribal independence, and it's not an accident that just a few years after the end of the Civil War, the government ended the treaty system. They so we're no longer going to make treaties with Indians, they're not nations anymore, they're just people who happen to be here and we will legislate for them, but, uh, you know, just as with the Confederacy, the idea of alternative governments being embedded in in, uh, uh, this geographical area was no longer acceptable. But that's a small answer to what is actually a very good and complicated issue. Thank you.
1: That was Eric Foner, The Legacy of Reconstruction, He spoke in Philadelphia in mid-January 2020. Eric Foner, winner of the Pulitzer Prize, is a preeminent historian. He's the author of many books, including The Second Founding, How the Civil War and Reconstruction Remade the Constitution. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. Now in its 34th year, we are independent and are supported solely by individuals just like you. Every week, we feature progressive voices rarely heard in the corporate media, such as Arundhati Roy, Ralph Nader, Michael Lerner, and Kianga Yamata-Taylor. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To place a credit card order for CDs, MP3s, or written transcripts of today's program, Eric Foner, The Legacy of Reconstruction, and his book, The Second Founding, How the Civil War and Reconstruction Remade the Constitution, just give us a call at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that number is 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order on our website, alternativeradio.org. Series theme music is performed by the Kronos Quartet, from Pieces of Africa. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamyan. Thank you for listening. Well, just go to the website, alternativeradio.org, alternativeradio.org. Uh, we, too, are independent and are supported solely by listeners who make donations, uh, purchase transcripts, MP3s, or CDs of our programs. So we're very much uh, dependent on listeners out there.
0: A C? One C.
1: (laughs) What about a J? A J?
0: (laughs) S? One S.
1: (laughs) W. And a W. (laughs) CJSW 90.9 FM. Broadcasting out of Calgary, Alberta on Treaty 7 land, home to Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3.